We're going to be uh, a little bit everywhere this morning. And so you might just want to take down some references if you aren't quick and adept at um, turning. We're going to start in Romans 5, but we're going to work our way through just a few passages this morning. Uh, here in a couple weeks, we're going to start in 1 Corinthians 5. If you have kids that are going to be with you uh, in those services, you're going to want to go ahead and read through that so you can be prepared to answer some questions uh, just from the content that, that we're going to find there that we're going to encounter as we continue to work our way uh, systematically through 1 Corinthians 5. But this morning, I want us to look at something different, um, <clears throat> just kind of a standalone. When it comes to your relationship with Christ, your relationship with the church, why do you engage? Why are you here? Why do you read your Bible? Why do you engage? If you listen to the lyrics of very many of the songs we sing, they're going to talk about the love of God and how it's uh, what we're running towards. It's more than enough. It is covering us. It is sufficient for us. It's what we desire. But is that really how we live our lives, or do we live our lives more in the understanding of responsibility? I've got to be there. I've got to read the Word. I've got to do this. I've got to engage in this set of requirements, which would really be that love is not necessarily the motivator, but it's this kind of inborn feeling of guilt or, or compunction, whether that comes from society or family or whatever. But when we truly understand, I think, the heart of God, when we truly begin to understand the love of God, it changes how we view ourselves, it, it changes how we view others and work with them, and finally, it impacts the lost. Just think about it from that way. When you really understand the all-encompassing, the fierce pursuing love of God through Christ, it's changing everything. So let's start in Romans 5. You can follow along with me. Let's start in verse 5 of Romans 5. Paul writes, and he says, And hope does not put to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So look at how he begins back there in verse 5. He said, hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts. It's this amazing picture that when we view our hearts as this open conduit, this vessel to receive the love of God, he is painted as having lavished his love upon us, poured out. And the fantastic thing therein is it describes, in, in, in the way the, the, the grammar is structured there, it describes a past action that continues to have significant effect upon us. 
So our concentration, our focus, isn't primarily upon our responsibility to God, but a reflection on the love from God. So imagine our hearts then, okay? They're ready and willing is typically how we view them. But, but how is he viewing them in that moment, in that moment of having the love poured out, in that moment of receiving his love? It's not in this willingness. You see, God's love is administered to us through the person of the Holy Spirit. But look at verse 6. It says, for while we were still weak. See, it's one thing to conceive or to recognize the love of God finding you being lovely. It's one thing to see God in pouring out his love to you in the midst of being lovely. In the midst of somebody walks up and they say, what do you think about Barry? And they would say, well, he's a lovely guy. And you're like, it must be a Wednesday at 1030 because he's normally a pretty rotten guy. And you look at your watch and you say, lo and behold, it is Wednesday and it's 1045. He's going the distance. Can we get the lights up halfway? And so when we begin to conceive and begin to understand that God's love doesn't find us on our best day, we begin to recognize the tremendously profound nature of his love. He says, while we were still weak, we were enfeebled, we were broken, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. And who are the ungodly? We tend to conceive that the ungodly are those people kind of out there, and so drug dealers, prostitutes, pimps homosexuals. We tend, to, we tend to want to cast aspersions and say that the ungodly are the people out there that we are not related to or are not in fact us. But when we begin to recognize and conceive that God in his description of the ungodly is casting this, uh, casting this label upon all of us, that each of us from my two-year-old, which that's maybe easy to see as ungodly, and as we begin to work our way up, each of them find themselves being ungodly. And we can see this but begin to personalize it. Begin to say that my story is that God found me weak and ungodly. My story is that God found me far from him, running from him. My story is that God pursued me. My story is that in the midst of this, Christ died for me. He died for you. He surrendered his life for you. The height of his love depicted towards you and acted towards you comes in the action of his death. Now look what he goes on to say, verse 7. He says, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. And we see this in the news. Man sacrifices himself for stranger. And we say, that is amazing. He gave himself up for someone he didn't know. Woman engages in act of heroism and surrenders her life for her children. Over and again, we see stories of people do tremendously heroic and brave things for people they don't know. But one of the things he says in here, he says, look, this is common. It's not, it's not often, but it is common. It's not something out of the ordinary to say that someone gave their life for a good person. But look what he goes on to say. We'll do this for a good person. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The amazing love of God for you. For you, as you sit right here, right now, in this moment, isn't because of some potential good thing that you were going to do. His love finds you not on the basis that you are inclined to him, not on the basis that you're mostly good, not on the basis that someone good spoke for you, 
But the goodness of God finds you because of the perfect love of Jesus Christ who surrendered himself to the point of death, even death on a cross when you were wretched. And this is the profound nature of his love. When you were wretched, nobody wanted you. When you were screw up and nobody would touch you. When you were so foul, nobody wanted you in their life. That's when his love found you. God did not send his son Jesus to die for us knowing that we would become better. He sent his son Jesus to die for us knowing we wouldn't. Christ died for the ungodly. But God shows his love for us, verse 8, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is tremendous sense that God's love has found us. His love captures us, and his love becomes the rudder of our lives. When we make all of our decisions based upon not some sense of responsibility to God, but having received God's love, it changes the course and trajectory of our lives. When I wake up in the morning and I choose how I'm going to live this day, I live my life based upon love received from Christ, not love withheld from me. When I go to engage my neighbor, I'm able to engage my neighbor from a right frame, not because of their potential good, but because of my wretchedness, recognizing I have received God's love and can extend it then to them. So what about in the midst of being backslidden? What about in the midst of making one colossal mistake after another colossal mistake and another colossal mistake? Sometimes we feel like the hapless nitwit who begun tripping down the steps and said, oh, I can't wait till I hit the landing, so finally I'll stop. They hit the landing, they roll to the right, and they keep carrying on down. And everybody looks at us and said, they fail with such uh, spectacular nature. How are they ever going to get their life ready? I guess all that's left for them is to die. Sometimes in the midst of making mistakes, the hardest thing for us to do is to stop and to correct. Because we look at it, and we're in the midst of making mistakes, and we're tumbling over mistake after mistake. And we're thinking amongst ourselves, how can I course correct? Course correct in the Christian is not found in a demonstration of self-will. This is a complete and utter lie. Course correction for the Christian isn't found in in, in recognizing you're making mistakes and and just pulling yourself together. Course correction in the Christian isn't getting more people around you. Course correction in the Christian is is a renewed focus and understanding of the love of God, which found you when you're wretched and and finds you in the midst of you being back there again, right? Luke gives us a beautiful picture of this in the words of Jesus. Luke 15, 1 through 7. Jesus is speaking, and and Luke writes, he says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. So you've got these two groups that if anybody said, Who are the worst people in your society? They would say, Well, it's the tax collectors and then this broad group of sinners. And repeatedly we find these folks are the ones drawing near, getting close to, moving towards Jesus. And then you have this other group, these Pharisees, and it says, And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. So look at this. You have this one group engaging, moving in, leaning towards Jesus. And you have this other group over here who looks at Jesus, who looks at the sinners and the tax collectors, and they say, you can have him. You guys are awful, and so is he. You guys are terrible, and so is he. You see people who know they need help moving in to get help, and people who fail to recognize they need help criticizing those who are getting it. So Jesus sees this, he recognizes this, and he tells him a parable. Look at what he asks, starting in verse 4. He says, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the 
one that is lost until he finds them. So we find this shepherd, this picture that Jesus paints here, and he's rounding up the sheep, and potentially he's headed towards the sheepfold. And as he's walking along, he's, he's apparently much better at math than I am, much better at counting than I am. He says, one, two, three, five. Oh, hold on, one, two, three. And so he, he gets all the way to 99, and he begins to look around, and he knows that he's missing one of his sheep. And so he leaves this herd of sheep in the midst of the open country. And this gives us the, the indication that he is so pursuing this random lost sheep. Verse 5 says, and when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me for I have found my sheep that was lost. Isn't this a spectacular picture of God's love? finds this one sheep for whatever reason, uh, advanced ADHD uh, of the sheep kind. And he begins to say, look, a flower. And everybody else is moving down. And he says, look, another flower. And a butterfly on a flower. And a grasshopper. And where did everybody go? Where did everybody go? We're at preteen camp. This is preteen camp. And so he's out there, and he begins to recognize that he's been separated from the group. And the shepherd comes along, and he lays his eyes on the sheep. And one of the things we see here from this passage is that when the shepherd finds the sheep, this is not what happens. What is wrong with you? The group moved, and you stayed. What's wrong with you? We were all moving on, this whole group, and you're like doing this number, looking the wrong direction. What fundamentally failed in you? Did you not hear my voice? Did you not see us moving this direction? He's not, he's not blasting the sheep. What does he do? He says when he finds it, he picks it up, he scoops it. He doesn't say, walk along with me. He doesn't leash it. Graciously, he lays it upon his shoulders and he rejoices. Why? Because that which was lost is now found. When you find yourself failing, recognize he's pursuing you. When you find yourself lying, when you find yourself cheating, when you find yourself living immorally, when you find yourself failing, recognize this, God's love has not quit on you. It found you when you were lost. It will find you when you're lost again. It finds us in the darkness. It finds us broken and it makes us whole. It takes us and our hearts to set us on the path of sin again. And God's love of redemption pursues us in the midst of our waywardness and being backslidden. And so Jesus turns in verse 7, he relates it. He says, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Our typical mode of operation is to find the people that are failing and to cut them out of our lives. But do we see that pattern of God? God finds the people who are failing. He finds you. He found me in the midst of my failure. And he pursued me, and he reminded me of his love for me, not my failure to him. He loves you. And some of us need to hear that message this morning. Some of us need to go to our spouse, our kids, our friends. Some of us need to go to the people we gave lectures to, telling them how badly they have failed. And to tell them, God loves you. Even now in the midst of your disbelief, even now in the midst of your sinfulness, God's love is coming after you. 
He delights and desires to rejoice with you, to welcome you home. And all of heaven is waiting with bated breath to see you once again return to the fold so that they too might join in and rejoice. There is more rejoicing in heaven over one lost sinner who returns. It was true when we were found initially in salvation, and it's true each and every time we come back to him and demonstrate our faithfulness to recognizing his tremendous love for us. So begin to recognize God's love for us is changing us. It's changing me. But when we begin to recognize God's love for us, we recognize that it's calling us into a greater work with those around us so that his love might be more perfectly displayed. One of the ways this happens is through serving one another. Look over at Galatians. Galatians chapter 5. Let's look at 13 and 14. Paul writes to the Galatians who have engaged in, in no, no uh, small manner of, of misunderstanding, no, um, no, no lack of problems there in this body, the way that they're interpreting, applying the law. <clears throat> so he starts off and he says, For you are called to freedom, brothers. There's this terrific reminder voiced repeatedly in Scripture that we're not called to, uh, to fidelity to the word, to fidelity to the law in order to maintain relationship with God. God is maintaining our relationship with him through the love of Jesus who sacrificed himself for us. And so Paul's saying to them, look, God has called you to freedom. There is free exercise for how you walk out your faith. There's free exercise for how you walk out your faith with some restraint. And so he gives them this word, for you are called to freedom. But look what he qualifies it with. He says, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. In essence, don't go out and say, I've been forgiven everything in Jesus Christ, so I'm going to go out and engage in all of these illicit affairs. He says, no, you're using your freedom in Christ as an opportunity for the flesh. I'm free in Christ, so I'm never going to go to church. I'm never going to engage with another Christian. He says, no, don't use your freedom in Christ as an opportunity to the flesh. You're being a selfish, and I would add, idiot. (laughs) Don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But look what he says, but through love, serve one another. Freedom in Christ, when we begin to recognize his great love for us, it frees us up to serve those around us. We have nothing to prove. Why do we have nothing to prove? Because we've received the love of God. We are approved in Jesus. We have nothing to show people around us so that they might find us worthy. And and conversely, they have nothing to show us so that they might be worthy. The word of scripture says we have been set free for what purpose? To serve one another. Through what? Through love. Verse 14, he goes on, he says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So we go out, and in our body, in this local body, we find brothers and sisters in need, and we serve them. True service is always going to cost you something. Uh, I, f- I frequently find, find that the people who are just a joy to serve are in short supply, and we tend to compete for them, Right? So the people with like the easy things um, that, that we want to serve, what do you need help with? I just need help giving money away. Fantastic. 
what do you need help with? And they list off some, something ridiculous. I need to go mow a lawn. And what is it? Well, how big is the lawn? Well, I crank the lawnmower, I turn the blade on, and we're done. Super small. I will be there. I will drive with you. I will unload the lawnmower. It's hard to love those who don't love us in return. It's hard to love, a, love those whose lives are such a complete and utter mess that when we begin to get engaged with them, we feel like the mess of their lives is clinging to our own. And it's hard to love others when we're so busy. Some of us have, have done such an amazing job creating busyness in our lives that we create no margins to follow this mandate of love. Man, we need you to take a week to go on a mission trip to Georgia. We need you to go to Africa. We need you to work here in the city. I don't have time for that. What do you have going on? Well, I have, I have these things planned. I have all these things. And so what we find is that as Christians, as just people in general in the 21st century, we are adept at creating a life with no margins. And so we are limiting the time window that we allow God to work in you want to say something funny in your prayers? Say, God, I've given you a time window from 5.30 to 7.30 every other week on a leap year. And you can operate in that freely. It's for freedom that you've set me free, and I'm going to let you work. God does not want the margins of your life. He doesn't want you serving your neighbor out of your leftovers. Imagine if Valerie and I had you over for dinner. And we've actually done this to some of you, and so I apologize. But imagine <laughs> if it was our frequent occurrence to have you over for dinner, and you come in, and you say, man, we're so glad y'all had us over for, for dinner. What's to eat? And we're like, heck, I don't know. Let me look. And we go over to the fridge. We're like, that's not good. <laughs> hey, we got a hamburger. <laughs> Let's just put lots of uh, smelly stuff on there. It's pungent. We've got some, and we just kind of go out, and we're going to unload all of our leftovers. And you're to say, well, man, this is great. And you're like, oh, you guys are helping us. You're serving us by helping us clear out. I mean, letting us sample with you all the things our family enjoys. So we called it our favorites meal. <laughs> but you wouldn't feel very welcome. You wouldn't feel very loved. You wouldn't feel very encouraged. Why? Because we've not gone through much of an effort at all to be hospitable hosts. But in reality, this is how most of us engage the people around us. We want to engage in work in our leftovers. Why? Because it doesn't cost us anything. You get no credit for service that doesn't cost you anything. You get no credit for operating in, in your leftovers. God does not want your margins. He already has your life. Surrender it to him. Quit holding on to that which is not yours in the first place. In salvation, you submitted yourself to him. You recognized Jesus as Lord. And in so doing, you gave him your whole life with no margins. Margins are a false creation whereby you actively manage your time and schedule. They are not real. And in seeking to uphold them, many of us engage in heinous, repeated, socially acceptable, and uplifted sin. Let's move on to one that's even more enjoyable. When we begin to recognize God's love for us, we serve one another and we stir one another up to love and good works. The author of Hebrews wrote this in Hebrews 10, 23 and 24. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. In essence, he's saying, let us together lean in and follow Jesus. And then he goes on, he says, and let us consider how we might stir one another up to love and good works. 
So my life, at least part of it, needs to be spent looking at Jeremy and Elaine, looking at Michael, looking at Jeff, looking at Mickey, saying, how do I lean in and engage these people? How do I make Jesus more prominent and more powerful in their lives? This isn't a call for people in ministry. This isn't a call for pastors. This isn't a call for elders. This isn't a call for deacons. This isn't a call for leadership in the church. This is a call for all of us. Your Christian walk should be spent seeking to manifest Christ more prominently in the lives of those around you. And this is why Christianity is a communal engagement, not an individual expression. You can stir one or another up. And this is a tough one. We need to be a valuable team member, not a star player. Paul writes these words in Philippians 2. I'm going to read 1 through 4, and then we're going to look at just a couple of them. Paul asks these rhetorical questions. He says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. We all have to be on the same page together at the same time. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. My first year as pastor at Ridgecrest, every time somebody would come in my office to complain about something, oh, the music, oh, the hallway, oh, the parking lot, and then I would jump on it and be like, man, that parking lot's awful. <laughs> Amen. Let's go have lunch. You buy. But every time somebody came in and I say, hold on a second, let me just ask you a question. How does what you're about to say honor Philippians 2? By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, counting others more significant than yourselves. They'd say, well, I'm certain there are others. All right, so let's continue. You're obviously not getting it. Let's each, each of you look not only to his own interest, but to the interest of others. This is what he calls us to. This isn't this isn't some type of next-level Christianity. This is what he is calling us all to. But recognize this. If we go out and we do this par excellence in, in this church, in this community, but we don't look to engage other churches in our area, we fail. Do you know why week after week we pray for revival, we pray for the other churches in our community? Because we are for them. Because they love and worship the same God we do. This isn't some clever marketing ploy where you'd buy in and say, oh, he's really selfish or selfless. No, it was a, it was a slip. Truly, I am selfish. It's not some marketing uh, deal to cover over my selfishness. It's because we recognize that the totality of Scripture points in this direction. We are all on the same team. We are. We need to advocate for them. So when somebody comes up and just candidly, somebody says something about Highland Terrace, we should be quick to extend to them grace. We should direct them to their pastor. When somebody says something about Crosspoint, we should extend to them grace. We should direct them to their pastor. But it's hard. Why? Because we are superb and excellent at drawing lines of distinction, and increasingly they matter little. One of the reasons that For the City is my favorite thing is because every year I get a glimpse of what it looks like for all of us to put aside our differences and work together for something that matters. 
and repeatedly as I meet with people. They say, this seems to be really kind of common sense that we would all work together. And I'd say, yes, you get it. Now go tell your pastor. But increasingly, we don't want this. We, we, we enjoy tribalism. We enjoy having our brand be best. We enjoy having our name be brightest. We enjoy having repeatedly the recognition of those around us. And I get this. Okay, I'll shut up. And so, I just comically, let me just share this with you. Comically, every year since we started for the city, if you read the newspaper, it says three people started for the city at a breakfast. Every year. It was John Kay, it was Jimmy, and it was Ken. And they went to breakfast, and the thing was born. And it has taken on this, this, this pseudo-history. It, it, it's not true. But what does it do? It absolutely keeps me from, you know, re- letter to the editor, I actually started for the city. Um, uh, it was my vision. I preached this sermon, and just so you know, and, and I asked Ken to come along. I think I said this. One of your reporters is there two or three years ago. But every time I read this, there's this incredible heart check for me. And, and some of the times I read it, in the beginning, I was like, oh, man, I need recognition. That is a resume patter. Not that I have a resume. But we, we can check our motivation in this when we begin to see, who are we in this for? We only have one mind, and that gets to be Jesus' mind. We only have one love, and that is his love. We only have one affection, that's his affection. We only have one sympathy, and that's his, his sympathy. And look what we're doing. We're working to complete Paul's joy by doing what? By having the same mind, the same love, and being in one accord and of one mind. So anytime something comes into your head... You ask yourself the question, am I a conceited jerk? If the answer is yes, stop. If the answer is no, ask again. If the answer is still no, turn to someone you trust and say, let me ask you a question. Am I a conceited jerk? If they do this number, the answer is yes. Gosh. And you probably need to explain yourself and get some background. We do nothing from that. Men, I want to see us captivated looking for the interests of others. I want to see a time where we have so many volunteers that we're able to outfit and equip the churches. I want to see a time when, when our people are doing so well that if a church comes to us and says, we are struggling financially, our word to them would either be, you can come join us or we will fund you and support you. We have too many struggling churches in our community. Maybe this is an indication that more of us need to get over our issues and join together so that we might might be more impactful together. But it's certainly an indication that those of us who have should give to those of us who have not. This is what he's calling us to be. This is what he wants to see us be in our community. So if somebody comes up to you and they bemoan their church, pray for them, pray for their pastor, and encourage them to do likewise. There's so many things, friend, that we can divide over. Let's not divide over things that God calls us to be unified over. Amen? Amen. Let me just end with this one. When we begin to recognize and understand God's love for us, recognize that God's love is working through you so that those who see you recognize his love and it calls them to faith and repentance so that they might become followers and believers of Jesus Christ. This is why it's so important that we recognize his love. 
Some of us walk around like billboards towards, you know, forgiveness anonymous. Some of us look like billboards and we walk around and, and what we're advertising is not the love of God, but it's that we want to be um, convenienced. We don't want people to inconvenience us. We don't want to be asked questions. We don't want to have to engage our lives with them. We don't want to have to draw close to them. We want them to stay at an arm's distance. We want to verbally communicate the love of God, but we don't want to have to do anything beyond that. What does it look like to be a Christian? Looking at Paul again in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 20. Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is passed away. Behold, the new is come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. What does that mean? It means not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Let's walk through that, and then we'll have verse 20. If you are in Christ Jesus today, you are a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. If you would say that, that you believe that the Lord Jesus Christ has redeemed you, that you are sinful and fallen, and you recognize in Jesus you can be forgiven because he took on your sin, he died in your stead, and he rose and sits at the right hand of the Father on high. If that would be your declaration, and you would say, he is the Lord of my life, then friend, that which was you in the past is no more. The old has died. And you are now clothed in righteousness, bathed in the mercy of God, and, and infused with his grace through the shed blood of Jesus. God's love finds a home in your heart because it has been poured out there through his Holy Spirit. You are sealed to the last day according to Ephesians 1. The old is gone, the new has come. Christ has reconciled you to himself. He has forgiven you your sins. It's time you forgave yourself. One of the favorite tricks of the enemy is to remind us of our repeated failures in the past. Quit dredging up things you've been forgiven for. Quit dredging up the stupid things you've done and letting them set the course for where your future is headed. The old has died. Why it's so important to recognize that we are reconciled is because God has entrusted to us this ministry of reconciliation. So that when we walk out and we're engaged in community and Brent walks up to me and Ken walks up to me and they can see that I am a reconciling agent. Why? Because they perceive in me something different. They're not able to articulate it, but it is the love of God moving and operating in my life. So by this, we are engaged in missional living. When I go to work, I'm at L3, I'm at Walmart, or wherever I work and wherever I spend my time with people. They recognize in me, not a person quick to extend judgment and hate, but a person quick to extend grace and mercy. Why? Because I'm a person who has been lavished with God's grace. I'm a person who is a living vessel of Christ's love. It was poured, in out, poured out in me so that I might extend it to those around me. You are a minister of reconciliation. You are. Our town needs reconciliation. Our families need reconciliation. We need to point out to people that they've been forgiven their sins in the person of Jesus Christ. We would see husbands and wives return to one another. We would see affairs drop right where they're at. 
We see wives' affections returned to husbands and husbands to wives. We see friends restored, families renewed, and churches made whole, and see a significant difference made in our community if we would walk forward in this art and ministry of reconciliation we've been given by God. God is reconciling the world to himself, and he's doing it through us. Look at verse 20. This is where we'll close. He says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. You are an ambassador for Jesus Christ in Oak Creek. You're an ambassador for Jesus Christ at L3. You are an ambassador for Jesus Christ at Walmart, and that place needs you. Everywhere you go, every conversation you have, you are an ambassador. The Spirit is with you. He is pleading for the very souls of the people you talk to, longing to see them returned to the fold just as you were, longing to see them made whole just as you were, longing to see them move from darkness to light just as you were. You were formerly far off and, far, and set apart from God, but have been brought near in the blood of Jesus Christ. You are an ambassador for Christ. You communicate that same message. Look what he says. We are an ambassador for Christ. God making his appeal through us. Every time you go out and every conversation you have is an opportunity to display the beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ. God is making his appeal through you. But here's the deal. God can make, cannot make his appeal through us if we become lousy vessels of his love. When you reflect upon his love, allow it to wash over you and to occupy every fiber of your being, you can do nothing else but display his love and allow his appeal through you to be powerful and effective. In this room, all of us know somebody who does not follow Jesus. All of us know someone, maybe they're a follower of Jesus, but they're backslidden. All of us know someone either in need to be reminded of the love God has for them or they need to be told the first time of the love that God has for them. Today, right now, each of you have an opportunity to choose to focus on God's love so that that love might be shown to them. You see, when we rightly understand the love of God, it can fundamentally impact and change everything. Because the love of God takes that which is lost and makes it found. The love of God steps into darkness and creates light. The love of God steps into that which is dead with no hope for life, and it vivifies it, and it makes it alive, and makes a dead heart beat for Jesus. Your dead heart now beats for him. And in beating for him, you're calling others to engage in the same. Do you understand God's love? Do you understand he uses you as a vessel for his love to show to a lost and hurting world? Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you for your love displayed on the cross, poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. God, I pray for those who have yet to surrender themselves to your love, that they might recognize its gracious nature 
And they simply might call out, Jesus Christ, save me. And so surrender themselves to you. Your fierce love pursues us and longs to make its application in our heart so that finding itself in our heart, our world around us might be transformed. And so God, I pray that you would be calling men and women to salvation. And God, we pray for those who have found themselves backslidden and disinterested, that they might be reminded of your great love for them. We submit these things to you in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.